Welcome to Partnering Leadership, conversations with leading influencers in the greater Washington, D.C. region and global thought leaders, helping you align better with your purpose, grow professionally with meaning, and have a greater impact. For additional leadership insights and bonus content, visit us at PartneringLeadership.com. Now here's your host, Mahan Tavakoli. Welcome to Partnering Leadership. Thank you for joining me on this journey of learning and growth as I have conversations with these magnificent leaders. I am really enjoying them, and I know you are too, based on your feedback. So keep those emails coming, mahan at mahantavikoli.com, and feel free to leave me a voice message at partneringleadership.com. There's a microphone icon. You can click on it and leave me a message there. Now this week, I am really excited to be having a conversation with David Rutstein. David is one of those very special people that I have known for over 25 years. When he was general counsel of Giant Food, he was kind enough to have conversations with me, help me in connecting in the community, and take me under his wings. It became one of those things that I cherished over the years. Initially, conversations with him at the Giant Cafeteria, the Giant Headquarters Cafeteria, and then eventually at the Daily Grill in Bethesda. David is absolutely a magnificent person, and I'm sure when you listen to the conversation, you will get a sense of that for yourself. He is really values-driven and has real important leadership insights that he shares all throughout, including 10 leadership principles toward the end of the conversation. Now, if you're enjoying these conversations, don't forget to subscribe or follow, depending on the platform of choice. If you listen to the episodes on Apple Podcasts, please leave a rating and review that makes it easier for other people to find the podcast. Now, here is my conversation with David Rutstein. Dave Rutstein, welcome to the Partnering Leadership Podcast. Such an absolute pleasure for me to have you on. Well, thank you so much. I've been looking forward to this. Once you invited me, I hadn't known of this process, but I'm anxious to seek to respond to anything you ask me. It's an open book. Dave, you have been a friend and mentor for 25 plus years. So some of your magnificent story, I have grown to adore, including the fact that you grew up in a coal mining town called Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. And I know that had a significant impact on you those days and on your leadership. How did it? Well, I can respond to that in several ways. First of all, it was quite a depressed area economically. And so you grow up with a sense of moderation, of modesty, and you grow up with all kinds of people. So that in itself was important. But I think most of all, the role that my family played in that community was a major influence on my life beyond any other. I think if we have a theme of this conversation, it's probably luck. It's that I've been fortunate. In this case, I've been so fortunate to have a lineage, to have role models within my family that I was able to observe as a young person growing up, and I viewed it as a sense of responsibility to try to emulate them now for the rest of my life. And I know your grandparents were leaders in the community. 
And your mom served as a great example of leadership for you too. Yeah, without going through the full story, it's the story of the American dream. My grandfather escaped from Russia. He was the one selected to do that. He came to New York, didn't speak English, got into the jewelry trade, just selling in the anthracite coal regions of Pennsylvania, which at that time was like oil, boomtown. He, long story short, anticipated the coming of the automobile. He was very smart, very resourceful, and started what may have been the first, but certainly one of the first chains of auto parts stores in the world. Very successful at one point, had 24 stores in the coal region. But more than that, he and my grandmother were, I think, without question, and I'm biased, the matriarch and patriarch of that community in terms of their participation in community work and in philanthropy. One quick story, which I think says it all. When my grandfather died, I was 17, and we began to hear from people all of them Holocaust survivors in the Wilkes-Barre area who were sworn to secrecy during my grandfather's life. My grandmother knew, but she wasn't talking, in which the stories then began to be told. And there were 13 of them who surfaced, and we don't know how many there really were. But stories like they set up a business for me, they educated my children, they bought a house for me, and they believed that charity was best anonymous. And I think if I stop with that story, you'll understand why they were role models for me. Absolutely, Dave. And all throughout your career, you represented that and you represented them really well. Now, I also know you had a counter example to a role model in your father. Well, you had mentioned my mother, who was extraordinarily strong. She went through a difficult divorce when I was four years old. My father only one way to say this, left us. And so, yes, in thinking about the role models or perhaps a reverse role model, he became world-renowned. He was the first professor of preventive medicine at Harvard Medical School, but wasn't particularly a people person. And I've thought, just as uh, I've thought about those in my family who I should try to emulate, I've thought in a reverse way, perhaps I should use that as an example of what not to do. Which is why I know family for you has been number one, number two, number three in all of your priorities and in life. I always say family is number one, and I've never figured out what's in second place. Yes, and that's fabulous. And, and, and I'm so, I get back to the word fortunate. I've had a marriage with my wife, Rena, who also grew up in Wilkes-Barre of 53 years, which should be a model for others. She's, she's the most phenomenal human being that I've ever met. Now, Dave, you went to University of Pennsylvania and were set on wanting to go to Penn Law. What happened there? Well, I guess it shows, and uh, we can talk about what examples I might try to leave for others. It shows you can't plan everything. I had a wonderful experience at Penn coming out of this smaller community and in the big city. It was kind of uh, overwhelming, but had a wonderful experience at Penn without getting into details and wanted to become a lawyer. And frankly, maybe it was ego involved or whatever. I just assumed that I would go to Penn Law School. Well, I got a rude awakening the afternoon that I opened my 
the results of my law boards, which were horrendous. And I never would be able to qualify even to apply to Penn Law School with, with that terrible result. I had, again, by way of example, it shows you you can't plan. It was in a serendipitous way that I happened to go to a cousin's wedding in Boston, coming back to Philadelphia on an airplane, sat next to someone. It was my sophomore year. And he said, what would you like to do? I said, I'd like to go to law school. He said, where would you like to go? I said, I'd like to aim high and stay right here. He chuckled and he said, well, I'm a professor at Penn Law School. He drove me back to to my dorm and said, if I can ever be of service to you, let me know. That was the first call I made. I guess, speaking of lawyers, you're allowed to make one phone call. The phone call that I met, made was to Paul Mishkin. I later come to, came to understand what a renowned constitutional scholar he was. He canceled his appointments that afternoon, made a phone call to a renowned professor at George Washington Law School. I'd never heard of the school named Monroe Friedman and said, I'd like you to meet this guy. I went on a train on Monday. That led to being accepted at George Washington. That led to my entry into Washington, all serendipitous, and ultimately what we'll discuss about whatever it was I did in Washington. You can't plan. There is some luck that you couldn't plan, but you were also very persistent because you wanted to get a position and work for Danzansky and Dickey, which was a DC-based law firm here. You applied and didn't hear back from them, and then what happened? Well, one step backward, when I graduated law school, I became a high-sounding phrase, but not as high-sounding a job, a deputy attorney general of Pennsylvania. But we decided we wanted to come to Washington. And so I applied to five firms and got three quick negatives, one maybe, and never heard from the fifth firm. My wife, as she's guided me through my life, said, that's wrong. Pick out the name, uh, the top name, and send a letter and explain that they didn't answer, which I did. And that was Dan Zansky and Dickey, later Dan Zansky, Dickey, Tidings, Quentin Gordon. And I was interviewed there. And in, in talking with the senior partner, Ray Dickey, who was quite active in Republican affairs nationally, he said, oh, one of my great friends is George Bloom who's head of the Public Utilities Commission in Pennsylvania. I listened. The next morning, I went to my boss, the Solicitor General, and said, I'd love to meet George Bloom. Why is that? Well, I just met somebody who I'd like to have a conversation. 8.30 in the morning that next morning, Edward Friedman calls George Bloom and says, I'm sending somebody up to talk to you. And I had a nice chat with George Bloom. He, he apparently then called Ray Dickey. And I was hired within that week. About four years later, Ray Dickey and I were trying a lawsuit. And we had a lull. And he said to me, did I ever tell you why I hired you? I said, no. He said, there's not one out of a 100 that would have gone to find George Bloom the next day. He said, I figured you could move well. So that's, again, you can't plan these things. Sometimes you have to, you have to make them happen. And you did, being at Danzansky and Dickey, Giant Food was the firm's largest client. That's right. And I, I tried a couple of cases for Giant. Izzy Cohen, who was an icon in Washington, was still within so many people's memory, and probably the leading grocer in the United States, brilliant man. 
I'd just been made a partner at the law firm. This was eight years later. He said, you're coming to be our lawyer at Giant. I said, really? I didn't, hadn't heard that. And <laughs> it took, and I didn't mention this before, but it took three rounds. I couldn't imagine leaving what I had just earned, but he came back the third time. And then I, I decided I would do it. I figured the company would be sold within five years. Turned out I was there for 22. Again, it's, I guess, an old baseball. We would say tinkers to Evers to chance. One thing leads to another. I got to Washington. I got to Dan Zanski and Dickey. I got to Giant. And none of it was planned. And at Giant, you were, to a certain extent, the face of Giant food in community. And you did get very involved, whether in the Greater Washington Board of Trade, which eventually you served as chair of the board there, or the Meyer Foundation, you really took on community involvement to a different level. Well, there's a short answer to that one, Mahan, and that is what I said in the beginning. My family, including my mother, who was active in everything, following her parents, and then I followed her. It was just the natural thing to do. So the natural thing to do is that community involvement, Dave, one of the things that I've shared with you is that a younger version of Mahan in the mid-1990s, you were kind enough to have conversations with me and mentor me through the years, whether at Giant Food, we were meeting at the Giant Cafeteria, or eventually later on at the Daily Grill in Bethesda. What was it in you that got you to mentor so many people? and have such a big impact on them as you did for me? Well, I guess it'd be easier for those other people to describe this, but, and again, immodest, and so I won't dwell on it, but people, even when I was in high school, would come to me wanting my judgment. And it led all the way through to Giant in the sense that when people said, well, what does a general counsel of Giant do? I said, most often, it's exercising judgment. So people came to me, and what evolved from that was that I said, you know, I can probably serve a role in helping younger people, not because I'm any brighter than they are. They were brighter than I was, but just having the experience enables that. I was quite interested, too, in the subject of diversity early on, and I suppose it was uncommon, still is, for a white male to be in charge of diversity. Today, that couldn't happen, but that was one of the roles I served at Giant. Now, you mentioned mentoring. When I, I was the last senior one in senior management to leave Giant when the company was sold, and the Venable Law Firm came to me and said they'd very much like me to come. I said there were two problems with that. I just bought a home where I'm sitting now in Naples, Florida, and I didn't want to practice law. And they said, that's fine. And I said, well, it'd be unusual. They said, what do you want to do? And I said, well, certainly bring in business. That goes without saying, but no billable hours. But I said, I want to mentor young people to get back to your question. So I had the privilege of interacting with I didn't count it exactly. It might have been 50 young lawyers in, I was there 12 years. And that's a role that I played. They all didn't work out. 
mentoring is chemistry, but there were some good situations, not the details of which we'll discuss, where people, I think, may have wanted to come back and get more advice, and that, that was very comforting to me. And Dave, you mentioned being an advocate for diversity. I've been in many board meetings and other places with you, having seen the fact that it's not just you saying it, you were a real advocate way back when on making sure there is more representation, more diversity, and more opportunity in the different organizations that you were involved with. Well, one of the things you learn is that there is a lot that is said about fairness in employment. And then minority of companies, use the word minority, a minority of companies that actually do something about it. And during the years I was there, I was very pleased that it was the personification in the sense you look around and there's some people who advanced in the company and you played a role in that. And my deal always was with people that if we worked hard to bring them up through the ranks, their obligation in turn was to reach down, bring others with them. And I think that works better than anybody else because human relations really undergird diversity. When you get to know somebody, the differences disappear. To me, tolerance is built one-on-one to get to know people, and then you don't much think about anything else. So we tried to encourage that. And you did a fabulous job with that. Now I know with your so-called technical retirement, you had objectives and you were doing more than ever. Well, I wrote out knowing I would be with you. I wrote out this. I don't know if you can see it. It says, act old later. So I've tried not to act old. I mean, I'm, I'm 76, but by virtue of yoga, which I've done for 30 years, I try to be very physically active. And I'll digress a minute, although I think it's germane to what you're asking. I knew I was going to retire from Giant. And then I knew I was going to retire from Venable. I flunked retirement, I guess, from Giant. And I thought long and hard over a long period of time, a couple of years, about what I would be doing if I retired. And I had an epiphany on a given day that most people, when they begin to plan for retirement, think about the activities that they're going to be engaged in. It's a cliche. They say, well, I'm going to travel more. I'm going to read more. But it all of a sudden struck me that there is a predicate to figuring out what you will do. The real question is why you're going to do it and what certain stage in life you do ask yourself for the rest of your life, which is indeterminate. What are your objectives in life? And I'm truncating this and distilling it. This was over a long period of time, but I came up with five objectives for myself. The first was that it was important that I stay stimulated, keep your mind going. The second is to be productive, but not too productive, because that's the reason you're retired. The third is to connect with people. And I have determined after eight years of retirement that that's the most important. I see down here in Florida, particularly men who've retired, who their day is made if, if the one phone call they hope to get that day is received or it's 
the opposite if it's not. I said to myself, fourthly, that I wanted to help people. And finally, that I wanted to stay physically active. And so I had originally 23 things I wanted to do. And I did a, a consumer reports matrix with full <laughs> circles, half circles, or empty circles with a matrix, putting the five objectives across the top. And, you know, working on charity wasn't going to keep me physically active. So that was empty. Doing more yoga. I was running again at, at that. I was still running at that time. That's physically active. So I, I then used that as the planning tool. And I've tried to stay with it ever since. And that's been a while. And that's fantastic, Dave. I also know you have something called an ethical will. What is that? An ethical will is a letter which you write to those who follow you, largely your family, explaining to them what the values were in your life. It's not an ego-laden document. It's not a, a biographical document. I did this or I did that. It is instead lessons that you've learned in your life. Now, that ethical will, I wrote mine almost 10 years ago, seven pages, which is the one thing I've asked my family to keep. It's on archival paper, so it won't acid-free paper. And then I took to deciding, maybe in line in parallel with mentoring, that I might want to teach that. And so I guess 25 or 30 times I've taught a course on ethical wills. I have one tomorrow morning. I've taught in Washington and I've taught down here in Florida. And it's been a great satisfaction for me to see that about 80% of the people, when they enter the room, they never heard of an ethical will. They think it's some legal document. It's not. But when we finish after some workshops, we keep tissues around because it becomes very sentimental. And people say, in some instances, I guess I've had maybe 150 people that I've taught. Some of them said it's changed their life and it's helped their relationship with their family. So long-winded answer, but that's an ethical will. Some people now call it the forever letter. And it is a beautiful letter and it's a beautiful process for anyone that chooses to go through it, Dave. You were the person that introduced me to the concept. I will add one thing, and it, and it was central to the ethical will. I had lung cancer 19 years ago, never having smoked a cigarette. It was found incidentally. There was a heart scan. I went for the new heart scan test. One of 39 pictures, the x-ray technician inadvertently moved it and they found something in my lung. Long story short, I was operated on at Johns Hopkins and I survived and well. Now I've had 18 surgeries. The last one was last year. I had seven hours of brain surgery, meningioma. But there's a lesson there. It taught me and Hopkins wrote it up, my story as the persistent patient. You have to take control the doctors won't do that for you. And secondly, when you have a setback, and I've had 18 surgeries, but I feel 100% extremely active every day. And again, luck and fortune come into play. And deep valued principles. I know you also have 10 principles for leadership. I want to briefly touch on each one of those because they are significant and important for our audience to hear 
The first one, be hard on the problem and easy on the people. Ray Dickey again comes through because I was tough with somebody and he called me aside as a young lawyer and said just that. Be hard on the problem, but be easy on the people. Take responsibility. Give others the credit. You can get a lot more done that way. Welcome all points of view, but then act. There are some problems only you can decide. Well, that's right. I think, you know, when you're in a position of responsibility, the toughest problems come to you and you have to decide them. Otherwise, I mean, one of my great joys has been to bring other people along and bring them in along in their careers. The women in the law department started off as secretaries. They became paralegals. One became an attorney. Uh, so you give them room to grow. You want to not act for them, but let them act for themselves. Interact with your people on a personal level. Izzy Cohen taught me that just by osmosis. We would go into a store together, and he would remember that there had been a family illness in a particular staffer's family. He asked about that because you underestimate when you're in a position of authority what it means to take an interest in their lives apart from what they're doing for your company. And that's one of the many things that I know made Izzy really iconic, his humanity, not just his grocery smarts. Totally. Surround yourself with people smarter than you. That's easy to do in my case. It's. I would argue that listen. Well, that, that relates back to working with people and hearing all points of view. We were given a, a two ears and one mouth for a reason. Modesty and humility don't have all the answers. That'll get you much further than if you think you're the smartest person in the room, which you're usually not. Something that is very relevant at this time for a lot of leaders, Dave, be calm in a crisis, never let them see you sweat. I had a wonderful colleague, a giant, a real estate lawyer who always stuck with me. We were going through a difficult problem and he stopped and he said to me, he said, you know, the harder the problem gets, the more calm you get. You know, it's the proverbial story of the duck. Uh, you're only seeing the top of the duck. You're not seeing the legs moving fast underneath. That, I think, builds a sense of confidence if you have a team. If, if you lose your that sense of calmness, I think they will too. Transparency, open door, and open book. That's a cliche, but you get a lot further that way. No, no secrets. And number 10, which I have definitely seen you exhibit all the 25 plus years I've known you, integrity above all. Well, that's the difference between a long distance runner and a sprinter. People observe what you do. I'll leave for others as to how they judge one's integrity, but central to my life. So Dave, now obviously you've had an impactful career, a wonderful relationship with your family, and so many people that you have helped along the way. If you were to give advice to a younger Dave Rutstein and younger leaders that want to be as impactful as you have been with respect to their leadership most specifically, what advice would you give them? Well, I suppose I would repeat what we just talked about the principles that I've tried to live up to. And to repeat, luck plays a great role. To be in the right place at the right time is just so important. I wouldn't have been able to do the community work that I did had Izzy Cohen wanted to be the, the one out there. I wouldn't have gotten to Giant without what I've described. I wouldn't have gotten to Washington 
So, you know, you can point to these situations where a person, and, and it was part of the mentoring where people would get down and I would say, just keep an open mind, keep doing what you're doing, work hard at it, and things will turn out right sometimes when they seem like they've gone in the opposite direction. And Dave, in addition to these uh, principles and your own brilliant insights, are there any leadership resources you find yourself recommending to leaders as they want to develop themselves? Well, most recently, David Rubenstein just wrote a book on leadership. And uh, that would be something, since he does what you're doing exactly today, interviewing people who have had roles that might teach someone something. And that book, I just read it most recently, it was just written. It would be something that I think you would get a broad spectrum of lessons from that book. I think, too, there's a book, and it relates to leadership in a way. Much of what I did over the years was either to negotiate or mediate. did a lot of mediation because I like to get people who were quarreling, and they ended up not hugging but not fighting. There's a book called Getting to Yes, which is written by the negotiation team at the Harvard Business School. I've been able to apply that book in so many situations to figure out what the objective is and figure out what people's interests are as opposed to the positions that they might be espousing at a given time. You figure out what people's interests are and you can usually get a soft landing for everybody in that way. So the book Getting to Yes is something I would probably want that younger person to read. Dave Rutstein, you mentioned luck a few times. It was definitely my luck to have met you 25 plus years ago and have had the honor and privilege of getting to know you and learning from you. And I really appreciate the time you took to share some of your experience, background, leadership insights with the Partnering Leadership Community. What meant most to me by this experience is that we've continued our deep friendship. I thank you. Thank you, Dave. You've been listening to Partnering Leadership with your host, Mahan Tavakoli. For additional leadership insights and bonus content, visit us at partneringleadership.com.